On today's episode of CorpCast, we're going to talk about some e-discovery issues, including the role of Delaware Council, privilege logs, including the need for attorney review and what happens when the, the attorneys don't review them, and uh, some spoliation issues as well. We have uh, guests today to talk about these things, uh, Ian McCauley and Laura Redinger, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to CorpCast. Hi, Kyle. How's it going, Pete? It's going great. So uh, today on CorpCast, we are going to talk some e-discovery. But we have some guests to do that because we are not the experts. Oh, yes. I'm clearly not competent to do that. So uh, (laughs) we have Laura Redinger. How are you? Hey, Pete. Doing well. And Ian McCauley. Good morning, Pete, and good morning, Kyle. Morning. Uh, and, And Ian and Laura comprise our e-discovery department here at Morris James, and um, they are really very good at what they do, and they allow me to not know (laughs) anything. But no, seriously, though, they run the e-discovery program here and provide us with a tremendous amount of support, and they're also up to date on all the things that have been happening in the last 15 or 16 months in e-discovery in the Court of Chancery, so we thought it would be a good time. Uh, for them to share that knowledge with all of our our many listeners. And most importantly, because if you are not as lucky as we are to have Ian and Laura here in-house, sometimes these um, either big-picture or nitty-gritty comments by the court can be a little bit confusing or you don't know how to put them in context. So that's what we're hoping to do today, let these guys put it in context um, for the bigger picture for Court of Chancery litigation. Yes. I mean, if you can get your own Ian and Laura... But you can't have ours. No, you can't have ours. Okay. So you want to get started? I think Laura first was going to share with us um, one case that addresses the big picture. Yeah, thanks. Let's dive right in. So the first case is Flax versus Pet360. This was the second motion for sanctions in a breach of fiduciary duty case in front of Vice Chancellor Laster. And the the plaintiffs in this case were basically claiming that there had been repeated and ongoing discovery abuses throughout the case, that especially in regards to privilege calls, but they they were also complaining about improper redactions based on relevance, lack of notice on substantial completion, and just kind of the large size of the productions that were eventually made, and the fact that there were third parties on the privilege log that they felt were inappropriate. Vice Chancellor Laster, in this case, he felt it was difficult to address the problems because there weren't actual specific issues being raised that he could address. A lot of the plaintiff's concerns by the time they reached Vice Chancellor Laster were already moot. So this was more of a general plea from the Vice Chancellor to the state of Delaware, basically saying, you know, please stop the discovery gamesmanship. That was his term. My term would be shenanigans. You know, stop the shenanigans. Unfortunately, firms are getting more aggressive, not only in Delaware, but throughout the United States in their discovery calls. And and it is trickling down to Delaware. So, I mean, I think that was the main idea that came from this case was basically stop it. Um, he, He did say that what would be appropriate in the case would be for the defendants to certify that their discovery was substantially complete. 
So you can't ask a party to certify that all documents have been produced. That's just in our day and age, that's not realistic. But he is saying, you know, the attorneys should certify that that substantial completion is done to the best of their knowledge. There was also a reminder, and I think this is a common theme throughout our cases, that senior Delaware counsel are responsible for the work product of the entire team. And that includes contract attorneys. Of course, it includes your own firm, but it also includes the contract attorney team. So, Pete, you're not totally, you know, off the hook. You do have a role to play. Oh, (laughs) And I guess the final note I would say about this one was his statement that relevance redactions are, quote, terribly dubious. We're going to talk later about the medical rhythmics case with Chancellor Bouchard, but this was another case where Vice Chancellor Laster is saying, you know, redactions, especially when there's a confidentiality order in place, there's really no place for relevance redaction. From my perspective, this case is kind of a mission statement for the court. Uh, Vice Chancellor Laster basically points out, as Laura said previously, that um, some bad things with regard to discovery have made their way to Delaware, and he sees the court's role and Delaware Council's role as kind of uh, clamping down on those practices, which kind of leads us into uh, the the next case, which is another Vice Chancellor Laster case, a common theme uh, with the Court of Chancellor is that many important e-discovery cases that come out are, are Vice Chancellor Laster cases. He takes a keen interest in the subject. Uh, so the next case was the James V. National Financial case uh, from late 2014. The case essentially uh, did two things. It first clarified, again, Delaware Council's role in the discovery process, and it also addressed sanctions. So the case involved uh, failure to produce a single document, Uh, The document's production had been ordered by the court. Uh, An affidavit regarding collection and production of that document had also been ordered by the court. And uh, the party failed on both counts. When you say a single document, that doesn't mean that zero documents were produced. It was... Correct. This was a specific uh, Excel document that was of particular import. Right. Um, And, you know, after the court ordered its production and, and an affidavit about its collection and production... Uh, it, it still had not, the document had not been produced. Um, during the case, uh, Vice Chancellor last year again said that it was very, very important for Delaware Council to be involved in all aspects of um, not just the discovery process, but the entire case. Uh, he said that there's really no such thing as local council uh, in Delaware and that Delaware Council cannot see itself as a mail drop. Um, and that's a particular import with discovery, uh, where Delaware Council has to be involved in uh, the collection, review, and production of, uh, of documents. It's kind of a restatement of sorts uh, from the uh, Court of Chancery guidelines that were released in early 2013. Vice Chancellor Laster also addressed um, sanctions. Uh, he said that default judgment uh, would have been warranted in this case, but he followed the Delaware Supreme Court which states that when two, two uh, remedies are available, to choose the less onerous one, uh, which is what uh, the vice chancellor did here. They granted adver- an adverse inference um, regarding the missing document as well as attorney's fees. And so, Ian, the role of Delaware Council specifically extends to taking an active role in, in privilege log review. Isn't that right? Sure. And that leads us into the Mitchell Bluestone case, which was kind of... Uh, part of Vice Chancellor Salvo in late 2014 
This came out a week after the James v. National financial case. Uh, this case, as Kyle alluded to, uh, dealt with the very exciting world of privilege logs. A deficient privilege log had been produced by a party. They had gotten, I believe, four cracks uh, at revising the log, and, and they just couldn't get it right. And so uh, when um, the motion came, uh, the defendant asked that every single document that had been placed on the log uh, should be produced in full because the descriptions were just not nearly sufficient uh, to allow any type of analysis of whether the document was actually privileged. The court did not, uh, did not grant that type of remedy, but it did find that uh, at least some of the documents on, there, uh, on the log uh, were so poorly described that they would have to be produced in full. Uh, it relied on uh, the Clegg case from 2010, uh, in which 97% of the documents on the log in that case had uh, one of five rote descriptions just over and over again. And bad faith was found in that case. This case, uh, Vice Chancellor Laster differentiated this case from that case and said that there was no bad faith here. It was just a deficient log, or at least specific descriptions on the log were deficient. And those that were inadequately described uh, were produced. I think, you know, one of the things that you can take from James and the Meckle Bluestone case is that the court is going to probably give you a little bit better result if you're the one who's on the receiving end of the <laughs> motion to compel on a privilege log if they think you're trying. Your effort in trying to get it right is actually going to show up in the log. Yes. Right? And so with the Clegg case from 2010, looking at it, it was all the same descriptions, mm -hmm. which you know would lead the court to say, you didn't really try, you just said cut and paste and, sure. and do it that way. Whereas here, there were different descriptions. They weren't good enough, they weren't but good. they yeah. you could tell that somebody had actually gone through it and tried. Correct. You know, the effort was apparent. Right. The effort was apparent, which is why bad faith was not found. Right. And that was another case, again, where, where the court again, emphasized Delaware Council playing, playing the role and kind of being the guardian and, and the gatekeeper to make sure that all of these processes are, are, are done in the right way. But right. despite these cases, we still see some issues coming up in different litigation. And so what about six months later, Vice Chancellor Astor had a chance to again comment on this issue? Yes, and uh, it, was, it was again another deficient privilege log, and he again spoke to... Uh, in very, very strong words that I will not repeat here, but, but made it very clear that the log was um, not nearly up to snuff and that he was, uh, he was severely disappointed in the log's uh, descriptions. He also stated in that case, and, and it's again kind of uh, describing what he had talked about in the PET 360 case, was that the court will not be complicit in this type of, uh, in this type of, of discovery uh, from parties. And, and so he's made it clear again that the court has a vested interest in making sure that these things are uh, conducted appropriately uh, so that, you know, it's discovery, as, as the vice chancellor says, and it's not hide the ball. One of the things or parallels that I'm seeing, and if you've listened to our other Corpcast episodes, we've been talking about the, uh, the potential end of disclosure-only settlements, and that was sort of a... a Know, a wave that was slowly building amongst various transcript opinions and then it reaches its way into some written opinions and then 
you know, next thing you know, you get the Trulia case. And it's not just Vice Chancellor Laster, but he's the one who's been most vocal about it, about, you know, making it clear that it, it is a Delaware Council role to make sure that the privilege log in particular and discovery in general is done in accordance with the court's expectations. And this is not a new thing. It's in the guidelines that's on the Court of Chancery's website. Their fancy new website, by the way. And it was put in there for the specific purpose of giving Delaware Council something to take to your out-of-town co-counsel and say, look, we're not just saying, oh, we want to be involved in this so we can increase our fees. The court is actually telling us we need to be involved, and I'm going to be the one who's yelled at, not you, if, if it doesn't get done right. And it's going to yell at you anyway, Pete. Well, the court, well yes, that, that's clear. The guidelines were a couple years ago, at least. And, you know, we still see these cases, even in 2015, where a court's saying Delaware Council needs to, to play a bigger role. And, and at some point, it's going to end badly for somebody, sort of like in Trulia, where, you know, that disclosure-only settlement wasn't approved. Um, but that's at least the way I see this, the way this is going, if the court at some point just gets frustrated and says, you guys aren't listening. Sure. I mean, they can only... You can only make so many warnings, and this has been going on now for years, so I agree. At some point, uh, there is going to be, somebody's going to be found to have totally waived their privilege. Something much more, that'll be in an, opinion, in an opinion, obviously, rather than in a transcript, but that's the way it's going. I did want to speak quickly to something you brought up, which is that the idea for Delaware Council to be involved in the privilege log is obviously not something to drive up fees, and that is something that out-of-town council may be concerned about. The whole idea of why the court is pushing on this issue is that anyone who has been through this process, and and I feel for anyone who has, and we all have been through it, uh, knows that more often than not, the drafting of the privilege log is the most time-intensive of the case, and, uh, and it's and it's the most uh, it's the most costly to the client. And oftentimes, if the product as we're seeing here is not uh, the best end product, you know how how well how well are you really serving uh, your client to try to claim privilege on half of your documents? Just throwing a number out there, and then you know trying to describe what are clearly non-privileged documents. So the court is really involved in this because they know that privilege logs sink cases. Budgets are spent on drafting deficient privilege logs, and by having Delaware Council involved and holding everyone to account, the idea is to reduce the cost, get it right the first time, and actually litigate these cases. Excellent. Great. Well, you know, I think we've probably heard enough from you, Ian. So <laughs> let's go back to Laura. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. And I think we're going to shift away from the privilege logs now to talk just a little bit about kind of more preservation and collection. Um, so the first case we wanted to talk about was Kandiki v. Sewer. This was a Vice Chancellor Parsons case um, and a motion for sanctions in a contract action. The original motion was due to the loss of a cell phone and the text messages on that cell phone in addition to the loss of some emails. Vice Chancellor Parsons discussed you know, the adverse inference where a party intentionally or recklessly destroys evidence. And rec I think recklessly was really what he was focusing on in this case, where 
He defined recklessly as a conscious awareness of the risk that one's action or inaction may cause evidence to be spoiled or destroyed. Um, and he felt that in this case, the plaintiff was reckless because after an anticipation of litigation had arisen, and obviously at that point there's now a duty to preserve, he intentionally deleted emails and he unintentionally, presumably, lost his phone. And so while there was no bad motive kind of tied to the loss of the phone, there was also no explanation as to why the phone wasn't preserved or backed up in some way in the first place. So, and I think what added to it was the fact that this was after discovery was stayed and counsel had assured the court that there was going to be no concern about evidence being destroyed or materials being lost. So, and I think the vice, vice chancellor said in a footnote that had they even given some evidence that they had in good faith conferred, they had in good faith you know, determined and concluded that it just wasn't practical to preserve the phone, or given some evidence that they had put some, some thought behind the decision to not preserve the phone, that may have been enough to avoid kind of the decision that this was reckless. But I think it was just the absence of any action. And I believe there were several, a couple of years had gone by. Um, so the fact that they had not acted in some way to preserve the cell phone was what gave them the ability to say that it was reckless. The defendants argued that there was no prejudice because several third parties had been subpoenaed. I think it was somewhere around 47 third parties had been subpoenaed. And so, you know, the, the plaintiff could have gotten this evidence from any of those parties. But of course, the court pointed out that third parties aren't under the same obligation to preserve evidence, and they could have been deleting documents in the ordinary course of business, so that was not a substitute. In the end, he said, despite the fact that he felt this was uh, reckless destruction of evidence, broad adverse inferences were not necessary in this case. He was able to draw more narrowly tailored inferences throughout his opinion, and of course he did allow fee shifting for bringing the motion for sanctions. Right, and in that case, I think, uh, I don't know that he needed to have any adverse inferences defined against the defendant on the merits anyway, which, you know, made it easier, I think, for him to, to say they're just narrowly ta tailored adverse right. inferences. And that case brings up an interesting point, too, aside from the spoliation issue, is the idea that your phone and your text messages aren't discoverable or too hard to preserve or too hard to collect, that's really kind of going by the wayside, and the court's expecting those um, materials to be available, right? That's right, and I, I think this goes very nicely into the next case. The issue is that the source of where that relevant information comes from is not what matters. You know, it, it's still relevant at the end of the day, and it's our duty to preserve that information and to collect it and to produce it. Great. So as Laura pointed out, you know, there are, there are numerous different ways that people are communicating now, and most, if not all, of them are discoverable. Uh, obviously, we just talked about the preservation and collection and production of text messages, which people are using more and more every day. Uh, the next case, though, which is a recent case, uh, the Amalgamated Bank uh, versus Yahoo case from early February, actually just involved um, collection and production of personal email. This was a 220 books and records case uh, in which uh, plaintiffs requested specific 
uh, communications from the CEO of uh, the defendant uh, from her personal email. Um, it was believed that she was conducting uh, personal or uh, business business communications on her personal email, and uh, you know the, the that was primarily the argument that it wasn't discoverable that they didn't need to produce it. It was personal email, and that's just not um, appropriate for for this type of litigation, uh, particularly in, in a two twenty action. Typically, the scope of of discovery in a two twenty action uh, is much more narrow. Uh, than a plenary action, which is uh, guided by Rule 26. Uh, however, the court found that uh, the business uh, the business discussions on the personal email account were discoverable, and that uh, those communications were needed to uh, fulfill plaintiff's proper purpose. And so, you know, again, as Laura pointed out, it doesn't really matter uh, where the communication is coming from. The fact that it's relevant. To the litigation is really what is the defining factor here, um, and 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 a good takeaway here is if a court finds that uh, personal email that's being used for business purposes is discoverable in a two twenty, then it is most likely going to find that uh, personal email used for business purposes is discoverable under Rule twenty six. Uh, it just tends to be uh, much less narrow. Right. Yeah. I mean, 220 by its nature is is yeah. more targeted, and 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 I mean, there are cases that say it is not the same thing as this Rule 34. This case really is a good summary of 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 powerful people using uh, their personal email, thinking that they're kind of insulated from those communications being discoverable. And we know, particularly here in Delaware, that. Um, there are people who sit on boards who are not employees who typically use personal email, whether it's Gmail or Yahoo or AOL. And it's just something that every lawyer needs to keep in mind uh, during the custodian interview process. I'm hoping that it was uh, Marissa Mayer's I'm hoping it was a Yahoo account. I'm hoping it, it was too, <laughs> yeah. just for you know. <laughs> uh, b- before we move on, I, just, I, I also did want to mention that... Um, Part of uh, I think what is making you know the 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 text message preservation and also even this one although to a lesser extent than the texts is that the advances in technology have made this information much more collectible than it was even two years ago because I, I remember Ian we were talking a couple years ago about getting somebody's phone. Um, you know, uh, having a copy, a forensic copy of that made in, they said, oh, it's going to be two days. Sure. And it's going to cost some extraordinary amount of money. And, you know, for a guy, if you're representing somebody who is a officer of a publicly traded company or even, you know, somebody who, who lives by the phone, or the concept of them not having their phone for two days or having to borrow some other phone or use a burner phone for two days with a new number and all that other stuff was it's like, that's not happening. I'm not giving you my phone for two days, but now it's a couple hours. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it really depends upon what they're attempting to capture on the phone and where those messages live, uh, whether they're on the phone or whether they're backed up somewhere. But the technology is now to the point where it's, 
it's rather, you know, most e-discovery vendors will offer the service. Whereas a couple of years ago, if you went to a specific e-discovery vendor, they would say, you know, we don't have that know-how, or we don't have the software to do it, we're going to have to ask around. It was a much more uh, laborious process. Right, which which goes into the court's calculus of, is this really um, something that can be obtained, and how hard, you know, is it is it to get, which, you know, is, I think, always going to be part of the court's thing. It's like, you know... Backup tapes, sure, <laughs> kind of thing. Like we're not going to make you go to backup tapes unless there's a pretty darn good reason. Well, and, and, for you and, to do it, and it's similar to the personal email accounts. I mean, a couple of years ago, grabbing right. a webmail account was you know kind of a bear to do that. It was, right. it was a difficult task. Now every single vendor is able to collect a webmail account. Um, they, they may not be able to collect it in a way that would be similar to someone using an Outlook account, but it's become right. commonplace. Right, and it, and and actually, it's in, in many ways, it's easier to do that because you can do it remotely, and you don't even need to all be in the same room. Sure. So, all right. Uh, so, Laura, we're going to go back to you on the fifth motion to compel in a case. Ooh, yes. That sounds fun. Fifth motion to compel. This is in ISN Software. Um, the appraisal litigation in front of Vice Chancellor Glasscock. The petitioners in this case had basically brought to the vice chancellor's attention several questionable practices throughout the discovery process, which of course culminated now in a fifth motion to compel. After the third and fourth motions to compel, the vice chancellor had ordered a limited forensic examination be conducted, um, basically to determine whether there had been any spoliation or inadvertent destruction of evidence. Um, But then After that process was complete and several depositions had been taken, it became clear that the whereabouts of several of the custodian's former laptops were either unknown or destroyed. Um, So while the respondents were saying that, you know, it's everything just gets rolled forward onto a custodian's new computer when they switch from an old computer to a new computer, I think the vice chancellor still had the same concern as during as with the third and fourth motions to compel, which was always the question he was asking is, are we creating an evidentiary universe from which I can render a just opinion? Um, and the issue, though, in most spoliation cases, it's, it's known what's lost, and because of that, it's then known what the likely harm is. And this case is more of an issue of just a party not being forthcoming and not being transparent with the information. And the fact that it was so difficult to get the information from the party raised concerns. And so the vice chancellor was basically warning counsel that they need to do an exhaustive search for what is missing and they need to do their best to alleviate those concerns that had been raised. So the remedy at this point was fee shifting. The vice chancellor wanted the parties to move to depositions, and if there were depositions that had to be continued due to the missing data, then maybe further fee shifting would be in order, but that at this point, burden shifting would be a little bit difficult to determine. They really needed to get through discovery, try the case, and then determine whether burden shifting would be appropriate. Okay, great. And then we have Ian... Yes. The medical algorithmics, medic algorithmics. Before we move on to that, I just wanted to add one more thing to what Laura was saying. And 
and the ISN case, in my opinion, is a, is a good uh, further further analysis by the court uh, with what it means with regard to self-collection. In that case, one of the two custodians had, at his deposition, stated that he had collected his own documents uh, by running a variety of search terms, but that he was he was confident that the process, uh, that it worked well because he had a technical background. And uh, the vice chancellor in that situation found that to be kind of a, a dubious claim. Well, and they even took it a step further, and I think they that the party said, well, I then went back and collected everything. Council told me to collect everything. So this wasn't a self-selection case necessarily, but it was still a self-collection. Right, and that gets into, did you use the appropriate methodology and right. in order to ensure that there are forensic, forensically valid copies? Yeah. Sure. Uh, we, we could have a whole we could have a whole cast episode just on that. No, we don't want everybody no. to fall asleep. We're maybe not. Would, they'd be driving and then they would veer off. Cause yes. Yes. <laughs> but I think the main point here is you need to have a good record for the judge, and they need to see that proper procedures were used and best practices right. were in place. Show your work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as, as, as Vice Chancellor Laster has repeatedly said, those types, that type of information, that is not work product. That, you know, yeah. it, many people may claim that it is, but, you know, the way you collected documents, how you collected documents, the search terms you used to collect documents, the vendor you hired, none of that is work product. That's all part, that's all non-privileged information that is essentially uh, available at any type of mean confirmed. Well, yeah, and just to be clear, I think certainly outside of Delaware, there are perhaps judges who don't agree with that view. But we know that Vice Chancellor Laster thinks that yeah. and believes that. So <laughs> at a minimum, don't don't go to him and, and suggest that that uh, uh, all that stuff's going to be a work product because he's not going to buy it. And Ian, a couple other cases show that the court is definitely not shy about getting down to the nitty-gritty as far as review and collection. Sure. So, so so far, Laura and I have, spoke, have spoken about kind of um, big-picture questions, whether it's uh, document collection or the role of Delaware Council. Um, but this medical rhythmics case that you, you've heard mentioned a couple times during this recording, uh, it really gets in, into the idea of document redo, review and redactions. And it's, it's very rare uh, to find a court talking about those nitty-gritty issues. We often forget that, obviously, after all of the collection happens and the negotiation over search terms happen, that somebody has to go through these documents. And, and that's essentially what this case was about. Uh, it's a Chance of Bouchard case uh, from the middle of 2015. And the case was essentially about a document dump that... Uh, one of the parties alleged also contained improper redactions uh, for responsiveness. And so what, what the court essentially said uh, in the hearing transcript was that, one, uh, it's presumed that after the search terms are run but before production that attorneys will review those documents for various things, whether it's responsiveness or privilege or confidentiality. And further, uh, if one is to read... Uh, the standard confidentiality stipulation that's on the Court of Chancery website, uh, it states that for, some, for a document to be marked confidential or even highly confidential if you have a two-tier stip, that an attorney has made that good faith determination. 
And so Chancellor Bouchard again said that the standard is for documents to be reviewed by attorneys, uh, which is a pretty big statement. Um, you know, there, there's been document review over the years has become a lot more complex than what it was in the past. Uh, privilege analysis has become much more nuanced, um, and, and uh, I think this case bears that out. The second major point from this case was that generally uh, redactions for responsiveness uh, are, are, are not the preferred method. Uh, that the, the stipulation, Chancellor Bouchard believes that the stipulation that was agreed upon is strong enough to protect um, that, that non-relevant uh, information. And his view is that if the communication is discussing uh, non-relevant information, that more often than not, that non-relevant information still might be important to understand the context of the conversation. Now, you know, does that leave room for situations where a document is easily bifurcated into, into various subjects and, and one, one piece of the document, particularly the non-responsive piece, is not needed to understand the, res the responsive piece of the document? I think the door is open for that based on the chancellor's comments in this case. Right. No, that's a you know it's a good point about the attorneys having to review things for confidentiality because that <laughs> that's sort of gone back and forth over the years. I I actually think it's in some ways easier to do that review and you know cause it to be labeled appropriately in your production than it used to be because I remember you know. Back in the day when I had to walk to school five miles uphill both ways. Six you know, feet of snow. In six feet of snow and bare feet and broken glass. That, you know, you'd be sitting in here in a conference room like this with, you know, a whole wall of boxes. And you take them down and you're like, all right, well, this one is confidential. So I'm going to put the yellow tab on that. <laughs> but then this one is not. But then wait a minute. This is... You know, that part is and this part isn't. And then, you know, you're going to be giving it to, you know, a third party production team that's going to have to make copies and decide what stamp goes on and what doesn't go on. And to me, being able to just, you know, do an electronic review and just click the confidential button is way easier because you can know that it's not like somebody's got to stop and then stamp confidential and then keep going. You know, it, so it's, it's a little easier now. Sure. I mean, everybody talks about how electronic discovery can be so expensive. Um, but if it's organized the right way and, and you utilize the tools in front of you, it actually can be much less expensive than when we were dealing with paper review. These, these two young ladies don't know what a paper review is. They're <laughs> confused by your words. Yes, it's, yeah. it's... I think they did, they did that in Egypt, right, with they the did. papyrus? They is that did. what it was? Okay. I, I used was. paper once in college. You did? Oh, all right. Well, that's good. You know, um, To make origami, right? Yeah. <laughs> and getting back to... It was the a late-night ordering food menu, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> getting back to one final thing with regard to the document review and the standard that, that the chancellor articulated... Uh, it was that he said in the case, look, you don't have, uh, you don't have a clawback protective order. That's, a, that's available to you. A quick peek is available. And if you wanted to dump these documents without reviewing them, then you should have explored that. Or you should have told the other side at meet and confer that you're going to do that. We're going to review certain documents, but, or we're not, and we're not going to review these certain documents, mm -hmm. and you're going to get them. Uh, or you know, if you wanted to do that, you could have edited the stipulation to not essentially require attorney review. So I, I, I think, it again, it's, it's getting back to be transparent, 
let them let the other side know what the plan is and, and make sure you know what you're signing. Well, and also, you know, what I hear you tell associates all the time is to think about the, what your plan for production is before you enter into these stipulations or just use the form agreement, right? Sure. So, you know, you need to understand, have those custodian interviews, you need to understand the scope of your production so that you can make a good call and you can negotiate in good faith knowing what your plan is. I know uh, just from experience that uh, at times attorneys are reluctant to engage in those negotiations because uh, I, I guess they feel that it's revealing mm-hmm. something about what sure. they've done or how they're going about the, the case. But to me, if you have all your ducks in a row and you say, look, we've gone through and this is this is what our plan is and this is why we have that plan and this is why the plan makes sense, Right. Uh, and the other side says, no, forget you. I think you're in a better position than to go to the court for some relief if you've laid out a logical plan based on actual data versus, wow, this is going to be a lot of stuff, isn't it? And, and you know, we, we should be able to do this. Or, or just doing it yourself and then asking for forgiveness <laughs> after the fact. Uh, I, just, I, I think you're going to be much better off in the long run, if you've done all the, the spade work in advance and then if the other side says, no, I'm not going to agree to that, you can get some relief from the court or you, you're probably better off. You may not get the relief you want, but you, you'll have a better case. Yeah, and, and your argument, again, is, look, we're trying to be cooperative. We're trying to make this more efficient for the client. We're trying to get to the point where we can actually litigate this case. And those are all arguments that the court is going to be happy to hear. Right. All right, Laura, for the final case today... Uh, uh, More nitty-gritty? More nitty-gritty, yeah. This is a a letter opinion from one of the masters in the Court of Chancery. It's the Delaware Acceptance Corporation versus the Metzner Estate. Um, And this is one that we just wanted to throw in there because we thought it could have been easily missed. But it was a motion for summary judgment. It was regarding a family LLC where husband and wife owned 98% of the LLC and son owned 2%. And... There was a creditor arguing that the family LLC was really just a shell to protect the couple's assets um, from creditors. The LLC agreement stated that when one of the parties dies, the LLC is dissolved unless the surviving members elect to continue the LLC within this 90-day window. So the creditors filed a claim against the estate, believing that the LLC had dissolved and that Mr. Metzner's 49% interest in the assets of the LLC had passed to the estate. But then this document surfaced that was an election to continue, which was signed by the surviving members of the LLC, and it was created by you know, the party's attorney. But there was a question as to when was the document actually created, when was the document actually signed, was it within the 90-day period? So in... You know how you can find that out? How? Metadata. Exactly. Oh! Very good key. <laughs> ding, ding. Woo! I you get a gold star? something. Okay, thank yes, you. gold star for you. <laughs> so the, the master found basically that there was a particularized showing of need for the metadata in this case. Even though, you know, the metadata was housed by the former law firm of this attorney in New Jersey... They felt that the creditors have a right to see the metadata. It was really would be the only way to clearly establish when the document was formed. And especially because the creditors in this case were prepared to bear the costs of that discovery and they had an expert ready to go 
um, to make that evaluation. Well, that's, you know, that is uh, interesting. You know, I will say this, you know, I assume that this case was not a huge dollar value. I mean, maybe it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't tens of millions of dollars. It was probably yes, on the smaller side. I assume, yes. Um, and, you know, this is interesting because one of the things the Court of Chancery has struggled with in um, coming up with, the, you know, this uh, set of rules that people could follow for e-discovery is the fact that um, while the Court of Chancery is known for these huge corporate takeover cases involving billions and billions of dollars, it also does hear these smaller cases, and this is a claim against an estate, right? And so... Most estates uh, probably are not worth all that much. And so the question is, well, how do we then get the data and, and the discovery we need for a smaller uh, smaller case? And if we have a one-size-fits-all rule, doesn't that make it you know, um, effectively uneconomic to litigate the smaller ones? And so there, you know, this you know, appears to be a, a, an interesting way to... Uh, bridge the gap by saying, all right, well, this particular document, yeah. you can get right. the metadata for. It's certainly proportional to the needs of the case. Right. 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 And there, you know, even though the, the Court of Chancery rules don't have the specific reference to proportionality that the new federal rules have, that is always, I think, been a guiding in, uh, influence on, on the way the court approaches these things. Right. And one other just interesting point for this one is that even though this was the metadata of a document belonging to a law firm, clearly she felt that this there was no attorney-client privilege issue here oh, so with, the, as it relates to the metadata. Oh, interesting. Well, great. Well, Ian and Laura, thank you guys so much for enlightening us on e-discovery issues. Uh, I, I feel like I know way less, actually, and not because you haven't educated me, but I know that there's got to be a lot of more stuff out there. Thanks again, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll hear from you soon because I do know that there are some cases in the pipeline that will be coming out in the near future, uh, and maybe we can revisit this topic later. Thanks for having us. Uh, thanks for being here, guys. Appreciate uh, it. Uh, we appreciate it. So if you have questions, want to suggest a topic, or want to give us feedback, you can reach us at corpcast at morrisjames.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at DE Corpcast, where we will put links to podcasts and information relevant to Delaware law. You can get more information on our firm's blog, DelawareBusinessLitigation.com, or be the first to know about content by subscribing to Corpcast through iTunes or any podcasting app. Thanks, and we hope to see you again soon.